Okay, so this morning uh, we continue the story of Joseph, and as we do so, in many ways, feels like we're going down a bit of a downward spiral. Uh, the more and more we read through chapter 37 in Genesis, the more and more we see tensions rise within this family. Things are becoming more and more divided. Uh, last week we looked at how Jacob had 12 sons, and the majority of these sons hated sibling number 11, the second youngest out of the 12, Joseph. Last week we examined, however, five reasons why the brothers hated Joseph. Firstly, Joseph gave a bad report about some of his brothers. He was, to use a Glasgow phrase, a bit of a grass. He made them look bad in front of their dad, and his brothers would not have liked this at all. The second reason why they hated him, he was daddy's favourite. Jacob continued in his favouritism ways, and he loved Joseph more than his other sons. And thirdly, Joseph solidified this favouritism by blessing Jacob with a long-robed coat, which, which may have been a coat of many colours. It was an outward symbol of Jacob's preferential love for Joseph over and above the other brothers. And fourthly, the brothers hated Joseph because he had a dream, one which clearly communicated his superiority over them. Joseph's arrogance in communicating this dream gave the brothers all the more reason to resent him. And then finally, Joseph has one more dream, one which reinforces the first dream, and without question, one which underlines Joseph's absolute conviction that his brothers and his whole family would one day bow down to Joseph's supreme authority and greatness. So five reasons why his brothers hated Joseph. And as we looked at last week, for all these reasons, the brothers can't stand to be in his presence it wasn't just any kind of hatred. It was one which leads to what we're about to read in the rest of Genesis 37. Yesterday morning, a number of us were working in a space in Ridry. We're in the manse area of the building. We're scraping off all the mould in the walls. We're doing it all for Jesus. We saw it as an act of worship for him. So we had this middle section in the wall, which is at an angle, and something didn't seem quite right with this section. You could move it in and out, a bit like one of these biscuit tins, you know, you can kind of move it in and out. And I started to work in, work in one of the other rooms, and I hear this mighty bang. I go back in and I see that that entire section of the wall that felt a bit weird, the section we knew wasn't quite right, completely fell off. Uh, it's basically just wood now and, and roof slates. Um, and this is a bit like Genesis 37. In verses 1 to 11, last week's passage, we're pushing that wall in. We're recognising there's something not quite right with this family. Tensions are increasing. They most likely give off the appearance that everything is okay to the outsider. But lurking underneath is a deep, deep hatred towards Joseph from almost all of his brothers. And verse 12 through to 36, the end of the chapter, our passage today, is the wall completely fallen off moment. Complete and utter disaster. Jacob's family unit falls apart in our passage today. The aftermath of all of it is how powerful hatred can be. The power of hatred. Hatred can make any one of us do anything in any given moment. So as we look at this passage today, we're going to do things a wee bit differently this morning. I'm going to go through this passage, section by section. We're going to use five headings, which explore the journey that Joseph went through. And with that as our foundation... I want us to understand this morning 
how this informs our own life, how this points us towards the truth of the gospel. Because all of scripture is breathed by God and it points us towards the reality of what Christ has done for us in our lives. So let's look at the first thing that Joseph experiences within this passage. And it's in verses 12 to 14 in Genesis chapter 37. Number one, Joseph is sent by his father. Joseph is sent by his father. Verse 12, his brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers know, your brothers you know are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring back word to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. So there is every chance that Joseph had become some kind of supervisor over his brothers. And his role was to report back to dad how his brothers were getting on. We know Joseph had already given a bad report about some of his brothers. What we read about at the start of the chapter. And Joseph maybe being used as Jacob's eyes and ears within the family to see what his brothers are getting up to. Or perhaps Jacob is keeping Joseph away from his brothers because he knows this animosity that exists between them. So a short visit from Joseph to the brothers would be enough and then he could go back home. Whatever Jacob is thinking, we know that his sending his son to his other sons would change this family forever. Permanently affected by this decision. Joseph travels from the Hebron Valley to Shechem, which was a mere 50 miles on foot. It would have probably taken Joseph three days to reach his brothers. And as we read on in the story, we realise he wasn't alone in finding where they were. Have a look at our next point. Number two, Joseph is helped by a stranger. So Joseph is sent by his father. And number two, Joseph is helped by a stranger. Have a look at verses 15 through to 17 within our passage. A man found him there, wandering in the field, and asked him, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dauphin. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dauphin. So it's clear, it's clear that Joseph isn't getting anywhere. He's trying to find his brothers, but he can't find them. Ironically, his lostness is actually preserving his welfare. And Joseph then encounters a man, a man who knows exactly where his brothers were. And not only did this man see them, but he also overheard them speak about where we're going next. What are the chances of that? I tell you what, Joseph is one lucky guy. He meets this man who had come across his brothers at exactly the right time when they were sharing where they were going next. In one sense, you know, I actually find this section, verses 15 to 17, a bit bizarre, to be honest. It seems like such an unnecessary part to include at this particular point in the story of Joseph. The question I want to ask this morning is, why does the author of Genesis, most likely Moses, include this section, a section where, unspectacularly, a man gives Joseph directions. That's all it is really. A man is giving Joseph directions here. When we get directions from someone, we don't normally tell others about it. There must be some significance behind this. You know, some commentators have suggested that this is an angel. The unnamed man or unnamed men in Genesis 
were often angelic visitations. But as much as we might want to believe this, the text does not suggest this at all. This would be an argument from silence. Others have suggested that this is the offer highlighting Joseph's incompetence, youthful naivety. He's unable to function properly without his dad's help. Others have suggested that this is in fact an indication of Joseph's persistence. He kept going and going and going until he found his brothers. His persistence is something we see later on in the story. And then there are other commentators who believe that this section is more important in a literary sense. This is a transition moment from Jacob's protection of him to the brother's violence towards him. Or another literary viewpoint is that this section is building suspense. The reader knows something bad is about to go down. They just don't know what it will be. They don't know when it will be. The encounter with the stranger causes us to wait a little longer to find out what's going to happen next. So there's a number of viewpoints as to what is going on here. And I wouldn't say that any of these arguments are necessarily wrong. What I would say is that they are probably insufficient and inconclusive. So I would hold on to what the commentator Walton says. He describes this moment as subtle theology. Subtle theology. Think about this for a moment. Joseph met this random stranger 14 miles away from where his brothers were. Having already travelled 50 miles, it is very unlikely that he would have found them. And if he hadn't met this man, then he would have went back home. He wouldn't have had this life-changing experience in Egypt. So it's clear that this is no coincidence. God is not mentioned here, but God is doing a subtle work behind the scenes. God is sending a random stranger to lead Joseph to his brothers. And in doing this, God is ensuring that his divine plan is fulfilled. Walton says this about a section of the narrative. God made sure that Joseph hooks up with his brothers, despite what his brothers are going to do to him. We cannot shy away from this theology given the clear statement of Genesis 50-20. God intended it for good. So this is God working through the ordinary circumstances of life, through this stranger. And it leads to point number three. Number three, Joseph is mocked by his brothers. We're going to skip verse 18 for a moment. And I want us just to focus on verse 19. They said to one another, oh look, here comes that dream expert. So there's a, there's a very good chance they see Joseph from a distance because of his long robe, because of his coat of many colours. And their hatred manifests itself in this mocking of their brother. And they're mocking, they are belittling him. And they're mocking, they're dehumanising him. And they're mocking, they are separating themselves from him. They're essentially saying, we are not like this Joseph. They can't seem to comprehend the love and affection Joseph has from their father. And they might even be in a place in their hearts where they can't comprehend the love and affection Joseph has from God because of the dreams that he's received. And it's for all these reasons that they hate Joseph. And their hatred towards Joseph is ultimately a hatred towards God himself. John says this in 1 John 4 and verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So I wonder this morning, is your life one which is characterised in some way by hatred? Is your life in some way characterised by hatred? Is there somebody in your life who you hate? 
maybe not outrightly, but perhaps subtly, over people in your life that you hate, plural? And have you considered your hatred as an act of hatred against God himself? Now let's be honest this morning, it's very hard for us to identify who it is that we hate. But a question we can ask ourselves is this, who is it that you mock? Who do you mock? Joseph is not around when his brothers are mocking him, so we do so behind his back. So who is it that you mock behind their back? You know, often light-hearted in our own eyes, but always sin in God's eyes. Mockery is one of the most deceptive of sins. And often the strongest inclinations of hatred in our heart are the ones we do not see because we think that through our mockery, our hatred is not as bad as we think it is. My challenge to you this morning is to examine these brothers and ask if you in any way resemble them. Because we see so many examples throughout Scripture, so many instances where people go wrong. And often we say to ourselves, I'm glad I'm not like this person. But just take a moment to let the Spirit convict you, to challenge you, to ask, do you in any way resemble these brothers? As they see Joseph from a distance, as they start to mock him behind his back. So number three, Joseph is mocked by his brothers. And number four, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. This point is not sequential on our list. The hatred clearly overlaps in two ways, mockery and betrayal. And both of these together nearly lead to Joseph's premeditated murder. Have a read at verse 18. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. These are strong words from the author. And then have a look at verses 20 to 24 of our passage. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colours that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. What we can conclude from verse 18 and verses 20 to 24 is that these brothers meant exactly what they said. Their intent really was to murder Joseph. They believed that by killing Joseph, his dreams would not come true and their jealousy towards him would be satisfied in some way. These brothers were carrying out the sin of Cain. Cain murdered his brother Abel because he was accepted by God. These brothers planned to murder Joseph because of the acceptance that he received by their father and perhaps because of a perceived acceptance that he had received by God himself. So what we're reading here is a crime of passion, but it's a crime of passion that's calculating. It's a crime of passion that in its essence is premeditated murder. Now note that Reuben, the oldest brother, is the only objector to this betrayal, but he doesn't fully object. He's kind of caught in the middle. He's still happy to go along with part of their suggestion we do not know if Reuben here is acting out of a genuine concern for his brother. Perhaps he had a sense of duty as the oldest of the brothers. In ancient culture, he would have been regarded as the wisest of all the siblings and the functional head over the other 11 of them. Maybe Reuben here is trying to make amends. 
uh, for sleeping with one of his father's concubines, something we read about in Genesis 35 and verse 22. Maybe he's thinking about restoring his own career within the family because of what he did. And he's using Joseph in the process. Whatever Reuben's motive, he doesn't act with any conviction. He moves towards what he thinks is right, but he's, he's still concerned about the opinion of his own brothers. Reuben tries to please everyone, and in the end pleases no one, including himself. The result, Joseph is thrown into the pit. We find out later on in the story, Genesis 42, verse 21, that Joseph had begged for mercy towards his brothers. And all of this brings us on to the final point in Joseph's journey. Joseph is sold by his brothers. Have a look at verses 25 to 30 within our passage. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When the when Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, what am I going to do? Now, verse 25 in this passage is quite incredible. These brothers were so cold-hearted towards Joseph that they were quite happy to have him in a pit and sit down and have a meal together. It did not bother their consciences one iota. So here we have another clear example of providence as well. An Ishmaelite and Midianite caravan heading for Egypt is travelling past the brothers at just the right time. What's interesting is that the Ishmaelites and Midianites were in fact distant cousins of these brothers. And this was a common trade route. Caravans would have travelled by here on a regular basis. But the timing of this particular caravan passing by these brothers as they stop to have something to eat, as Joseph sits below in a cistern, begging for mercy, points towards God's providential hand to save Joseph. The providence of God again. Judah takes a lead here. He clearly has an issue with killing his brother. But he's got absolutely no problem with selling him into slavery. Perhaps because he's going to gain something from Joseph's bondage. Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. A common price for slaves in this period. It represented two years wages for a shepherd. 20 shekels going 10 ways would have been a couple of shekels each for the brothers. And it's not like these guys needed the money. Jacob and his family were well off. So another two shekels for each of them. God had already blessed this family with wealth. The closest, the closest these brothers came to showing mercy is when they could make a profit out of Joseph. When they treated their brother as a as subhuman, as a commodity, they in a very small way showed some evidence of grace. The law of Moses would have regarded Joseph as being sold into slavery in Egypt as just as serious an act as murder, with the same punishment for both. Exodus 21 and verse 16, we read these words, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death. Whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So what they were doing here was deeply sinful in the eyes of God. 
And this leads to our final section, which I've titled The Aftermath. The Aftermath. In verses 31 to 36, we read these words. So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped a robe in its blood. They sent a long-sleeved robe to their father and said, We found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognised it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. So just as Jacob killed a goat and used its skin to deceive his, his dad, his father, Isaac, the brothers kill a goat and they use its blood to deceive Jacob. So they deceive their dad, making sure that they distance themselves from his disappearance. They don't bring the robe to Jacob. They send it to him, probably using one of their slaves. And they also ask, is it your son's robe or not? Is it your son's robe or not? They did not identify Joseph as their brother. Instead, they identified Joseph as their father's son. Their hatred towards Joseph still burned within them. They can't bring themselves to recognise that Joseph was a part of the family. This is a brutal passage for us to read. The brothers take Joseph out, but they didn't quite realise that this would not result in Jacob then showing affection to them. As we read in this passage, Jacob intended to mourn the loss of his favourite son until his death. So Jacob is devastated. But what about Joseph? Think about this for a moment. As Joseph sat in chains in this caravan, heading towards Egypt, how do you think he felt? How do you think he felt? What do you think was going through his mind? When do you think he started to doubt God? So God had promised Joseph's great-granddad, Abram, that his family would live in a foreign land for 400 years, becoming enslaved and oppressed. God says to Abram in Genesis 15 and in verses 13 to 14, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. So God made this promise 400 years before and this moment, the moment when Joseph sits in bondage in a caravan, is the beginning of this promise from God to this family, a family which Joseph was an important part of. But to be honest, you know, I don't think Joseph as a young man would have been aware of this promise his great-grandfather had received. And even if he was aware of this promise, he most likely would not have connected the dots. I'm pretty certain he was not able, in this caravan, travelling towards Egypt, in bondage, he was not able to find purpose in this devastating pain of his. Such was the shock and the magnitude of what he was going through. What I'm trying to say here is, I don't think Joseph is rejoicing that God is using this situation for good. He's maybe doubting God had ever spoken to him in the first place. He's maybe thinking to himself, these dreams that I've had, where are they really of God? I think Joseph was most likely overwhelmed in this moment with fear and grief and confusion 
as to what he was going through, he could not see this loving God in the midst of all of his suffering. So yes, absolutely, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. But let's be honest this morning, we often know that all things work for the good after the event, after the deepest moments of despair and struggle that we face. More often than not, we understand God means for good as we see how he has led us through our situation with his loving, caring and protective hand. It's as we look back, in the midst of it, confusion, in the midst of it, struggle, in the midst of it, doubt, none of that is necessarily sin. It's just a natural reaction to what we face. But as we look back, we can see God's loving care and God's protective hand. You know, it's fascinating. God is never mentioned in this passage, but it's abundantly clear he is at work. In the same way, we often struggle to see God in our trial. It feels like God is never mentioned in the passage of our lives. But we, again, we can have confidence. He is at work. As you look back onto this passage, having read Genesis 37 through to Genesis 50, it's obvious, it's so clear. God's at work in this moment. And as we look back on our own lives, we see God is at work. Steinman in his commentary in Genesis says this about Joseph's story, and it'll be up on the screen for us. Uh, although God is never mentioned in this chapter, it is clear that his plan was revealed in Joseph's dreams. And it is certain that even in the cruel and evil act of Joseph's brothers when they sold him into slavery, God was still at work not only to keep his promise to what would become the nation of Israel, but also to keep his promise to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring, who would come from Israel to deliver the word from Adam's sin, to deliver the world from Adam's sin. That God is not mentioned at all in this chapter makes his work appear all the more powerful when his plan comes to fruition in Egypt many years later. Amen. So just because you can't see God's bigger plan for your life in the middle of the suffering that you face, it does not mean that God does not have a bigger plan for your life in the middle of the suffering that you face. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 17, Therefore we do not give up. We do not give up. Maybe that's a word for you today. Do not give up. Even though our outer person has been destroyed, our inner person has been renewed day by day, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I love that phrase. I mean, Paul just wants us to really get this when he writes us to the church in Corinth. He wants them to get it. He wants us to get it. Our momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I mean, it sounds like he's rapping there. Like he's just so passionate about what he's saying. But it's just it's such a, a convincing word from Paul. He is 100% certain that God is using his suffering the church in Corinth suffering, our suffering, to do a renewal work so that we become the people God has called us to be. You know, it's so hard for us to see this sometimes because our circumstances can be so loud and his word and his promises can seem so quiet within our lives. More often than not, it feels like the promises of God 
I've hit a Genesis 37 verse, sorry, Genesis 37 verse 12 to 36 wall in our lives. It feels like we're just reaching this dead end. Have you ever had those moments where everything is falling apart and we cry out to God and we ask, God, where are you? And let's not be in denial. We've all had these moments. Maybe this is what you're experiencing right now. Understand this morning that the one who saves you promises to keep you. And whatever it is that you go through, if God saves, he promises to keep. This morning, let me just identify four areas of our lives where we are often tested in this regard. We look at the promise of God, we see our own circumstances, and we feel compelled to ask, God, where are you? God, are you going to turn up here? God, will you fulfill your promise for me in my life? So let me just suggest four potential areas within our lives as we think about how the promise of God, the word of God, seemingly does not match up with our experience and how God is using that fact, that difference, to do a, a new work within our lives. The first one, first area of our lives where we're often tested is an assurance, assurance the assurance of salvation. Perhaps this morning you're struggling with this idea that God has saved you or God could ever save you. You know, we can come up with a whole host of different reasons as to why God's love has departed from us. And every single one of them, completely unbiblical. You won't find any passage or verse in scripture that says that you can lose your salvation. But I wonder if that's you this morning. I know it was me for a season in my life. I was convinced as a young Christian utterly convinced that I lost my salvation. And yet the more and more I studied, the more and more God by his spirit led me to places that showed that nothing can ever separate us from his love. As Joseph sat in bondage on the way to Egypt, needing to be reminded of God's promise, do you need to be reminded of his promise as well? His promise of assurance. Do you need a fresh reminder that he will always sustain you? His love will never leave you. Paul writes in Romans 8, and in verses 38 to 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. You can't get a more assuring passage than that. So hold on to the fact that if God has saved you, he will keep you. You cannot lose your relationship with him. So as you see his word, as you experience what it is you might experience today, don't focus on your circumstances. Focus on his promise and let that inform what you see in your life. So the first area where we're often tested is assurance. Second area is comfort. Comfort. Now I don't mean like our own personal comfort that we pursue in our lives often from a kind of fleshly, worldly perspective. What I'm speaking of is, is God's comfort in hand. Sometimes we need the comfort of God within our lives. Sometimes we find it really difficult to experience his comfort in the midst of all that we're facing. Our present day pressures can seem so much louder than the word of God. So let me just encourage you to not fix your eyes on what you're facing horizontally, vertically fix your eyes on his strength and on his promises. Let me encourage you to focus on 2 Corinthians chapter 1 
And in verses 3 to 4, again Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. He is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So there's a pathway here. We receive God's comfort vertically, and this results in us being able to comfort other people. But it starts here. We can't start helping other people unless we have experienced this comfort for ourselves. And all affliction, all affliction, do we understand the word all? Every moment and season and situation of affliction, God promises to comfort us. Not just some of it. Embrace this reality and live in his word today. Let me encourage you to pray through this passage today. If you're struggling with this reality that God will give you comfort, then run to this passage and pray through it. Ask it that these words would come alive, not just in your head, but in your heart. So God, we're often tested in this area of comfort. And number three, we're often tested in this area of provision. Maybe your life is one where you're in need of some kind of provision. Material, financial, relational. Today you lack. It's clear that you lack. You're clearly in need and you don't know how to respond. You're asking God, I need this in my life. And yet you do not have what you hope for, what you long for. Let me just encourage you with the words of Paul in Philippians 4 and verse 19. Paul says this, And my God will supply all your needs. Again, that word all. All your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your wants. No, it doesn't say all your wants. It says all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So have the humility to identify what you need. Hold on to this passage. Pray through this passage and believe that God will give you all that you need. God will give you all that you need as you trust your heavenly Father, not so that you can glory in yourself, but so that you can glorify God. That people will see how God has provided for you, and they won't see you, they'll see God at work within your life. And the final area of testing that we often experience is power. Power. I can't see anybody online, but put your hand up if uh, anybody finds it difficult to share their faith. Okay, yeah, most of you. Hopefully all of us. I'm pretty sure everyone, every single one of us finds it difficult to share a faith. You know, we so often become aware of how much we lack within our lives when we try and share the gospel with those who don't know the gospel, those who don't have a living relationship with Jesus. And I just want to direct you to the words of Acts 1.8, the words of Jesus, God's promise of power for our lives. Jesus says, and it's a promise again, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So you will receive power, and you will be my witness. Two promises there. Two different sides of the same coin. This is a promise of his power, so that we might be an effective witness for Christ. Let me encourage you, as you live the gospel, as you display the gospel in your lives, Rest in this truth that our ability to witness does not come from us. You know, to be honest, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. So often I'll say to myself, 
I can share the gospel because I'm introverted and that's just total nonsense. God uses every single personality to share the gospel. And it's, it's nothing to do with Mark Morris. And it's everything to do with his power at work within my life. So may that be true for every single one of us. As we think of those who we know and love in our lives who don't yet know Jesus, before we think about how we can share the gospel, we need to be asking vertically again, God, grant me a power to be able to share, to be able to display your love towards them. So I wonder, can you identify with any of those areas in your life? Power, provision, comfort, assurance. Can you identify with any of those areas? Um, you know, as we, we think about these areas, um, and as we think about just all that God's been doing in Ridry, um, it's just interesting I see just so many similarities between the Christian life and what God's doing within this building and in the space at the moment for those walking by those looking from the outside in it doesn't look like much is changing in fact there's a lot more rubbish and stuff in the garden a lot more junk it might even appear that things are getting worse within the space and what people don't see is always happening on the inside the doors are often closed there's a lot of good things happening on the inside. The walls are being removed. Rubbish is being cleared. Mold has been scraped off the wall, praise God. The building has been restored back to its original God-ordained purpose. And it's a process that we need to go through in order to reach our intended destination. A functional and effective community space. But this is also a picture of our lives as well. You know, the rubbish and the junk often come to the surface. People see the rubbish and the junk outwardly. And it may appear like things are getting worse. But God is doing an inner work that nobody else sees. God is doing a work that perhaps even you can't see within your own life. This was certainly the case with Joseph. You know, he just entered a season of disaster in his life. And God was bringing all of his junk to the surface in order that Joseph might be the man that God had called him to be. So a question for you as we close, are you willing to let the renovating heart of God, hand of God, shape you into all that he is calling you to be? Are you willing to let the renovating heart and hand of the Lord shape you into all that he is calling you to be? It's going to be painful. It's going to be a lot of scraping, a lot of demolishing, but it will be so worth it. You'll look back in your life and you'll see the work that God has done. As we now respond in worship, just let me encourage you to come to God in faith that he knows exactly what he's doing. We do not have a clue about our own lives. We do not know what is best for our lives, but he knows exactly what he's doing. Maybe this morning you want to commit your life to Jesus for the first time. If you're here in person, then do speak to us after the service. If you're watching online, you can click the prayer button or it messages directly. If you feel convinced and convicted that you're being led to give your, your whole life to him, trusting that he has the very best for your life. If that's you, I would ask you to have the courage to respond in faith today. Maybe this morning you need to take a moment to surrender. You're, you're being hit with a Genesis 37 verses 12 to 36 moment and you do not know if you can trust God. Can I say to yourself, can I trust God here? It seems like things are just so overwhelming. Things are so big, so loud. And God's word seems so small and so quiet. 
Let me just encourage you to rest in his promise. Step out in faith. Recognise that God is always in control. None of us is wasted. None of our suffering and our trials are wasted. This is a means from which you'll become more and more like Jesus. You will not experience God's sanctifying work unless you suffer. So again, do speak to us after the service. Or if you're watching online, do click on the prayer button or messages directly. Do not miss out on what God wants to do in and through you in this moment. And as we respond in worship, we can come to the table today. As we do so, we're recognising that God understands our suffering because he suffered on our behalf. Jesus died a death we did not die so that we might be able to live the life we now can live today, eternal life. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my, this is my body which is for you. And in the same way, he took the blood, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So as we come to this table, as we take this bread, as we drink this cup, we first and foremost remember that before we think about our own suffering, we have to focus on the suffering of Christ and his suffering as a demonstration of his love towards each one of us. So these are ways in which we can respond and worship. As we listen to these songs, if we're watching online, we can sing away to our heart's content. But let us take a moment to wholeheartedly give our junk to him and trust that he has the very best for us. Let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we, we recognise that this is a difficult passage for us to chew on. But Lord, we know it's an important one. We know, Lord, that we can often avoid subjects of suffering and trial and difficulty. But Lord, we, we thank you that, that there's always a lesson to be learned in the midst of impossible situations. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of our own impossible situation, your still small voice would speak to us in a way which we have never heard before, in a way which transforms us, in a way which makes us the people you call us to be. So Holy Spirit, would you come, would you speak, and would you transform? We trust you, Lord, that you will do this. You promise in your word that you will do it, and we come boldly to your throne of grace with confidence. We come to your table and we receive all that you want to give to us. We ask this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Love you guys. God bless.